The way of Jesus is victory under, not victory over. It's, it, you look at the life of Jesus, it's, it's, it's his path, it's his way, it's victory under, not victory over. And we, we surrender. Victory is found through surrender. Everywhere else you look in life, it is found through strength. Like every other person wins victories by fighting. Jesus, by suffering. All other like gods, they're not even real, but all other gods in other religions and other faith, they exercise power by killing. Jesus exercises power by dying. No other God, no other power, no other being in all the world loves like this, gives like this, and dies like this. The victory that you carry as a Jesus follower is that you can suffer and not become defeated. Because now you don't need to somehow eliminate your problems in order to be victorious. Victory has been brought to you in the person of Jesus. So, so as a Jesus follower, hear me, hear me. Victory's not somewhere out there. Victory, victory's in here. It's been brought to you. It's not somewhere to be found. It's, it's here with you. It exists in you. Uh, I thought I would just start by uh, telling you a little something about myself that you may not already know. And uh, that is that I really hate to lose. I, like, I really hate to lose. Uh, I don't know if some of you can relate to me uh, on that or not, but I, I really hate to lose. And this, is, this has been true of me uh, since as long as I can remember. Uh, I, I hate losing in sports. I hate losing at board games. You know, I just flat out hate to lose. And truth be told, I think that this is likely something that I learned from my dad. Uh, I, I am absolutely going to try to shift the blame onto my dad for one of my character flaws. Uh, but I think I picked it up from my dad because dad hates to lose. He absolutely hates to lose. In fact, when dad loses, he is well known in our family uh, to suggest that we play again. You know, uh, right? He is, uh, in, fact, in fact, he hates losing so much that he will suggest that we play again and again and again until he has finally tasted victory, okay? So I think that I might have learned this from my dad because similar to my dad, I just want to win. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I am a winner. I just want to win. I um, I love the feeling of winning. Uh, I have this, this competitive side to me that just, just hates to lose. It's a side of me that the Lord has had to refine in me on multiple occasions over the last several years, um, but I just, I, I, I hate to lose. So uh, when it all comes down uh, to it, uh, I, I hate the feeling of defeat, and I hate the feeling of someone or something getting the better of me. Hate it. Absolutely hate it. On like a, I guess a, a more serious level, you know, moving away from like sports and board games and trivial things like that, on a more serious level, you know, there have been many times throughout the years where I have just felt defeat. Uh, maybe that's something you can relate uh, again with me on, but there have been multiple times throughout the years where I have just been in a season, been in a moment where I've just felt defeat. I, I, can, I can think of times you know, where, where sin got the better of me, quite honestly. Uh, I think of anger and emotions and other things, you know, that just don't want to, you know, necessarily say and share, you know, things that you just, just feel, oh my gosh, I can't believe that got the better of me. And just wondering in those moments and in those seasons, like, am I ever going to overcome that? Am I ever going to get beyond that? Am I ever going to have, like, a victory in that area? And, and just flat out feeling defeated. I don't know if, if, there's, if there's anybody in here who, who can relate 
uh, to me on that. You know, I, I can think of moments and seasons in my life of, of praying for certain things to happen and then for them to not happen. Uh, I, I, can, I can remember uh, times of just being so desperate for a win, so desperate for a victory, and, and the person doesn't get healed or the miracle doesn't happen, and just feeling flat out defeated, you know? Um, I can think of moments throughout the last several years of even leading this church of just like wanting things to happen faster, wanting things to happen faster, you know, growth and impact and transformation in people's lives and just having like seasons, having, having like legit moments of just going like, I wonder like if we're ever going to get to the place where like Jesus is really the most important thing to us. I wonder if we're ever going to get to the point where like, like making an impact on the kingdom of God is the thing that like makes us tick and makes us go. Like, are we ever like collectively as a church going to, you know, and having seasons and moments where I just am like, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think I, I think I need a vacation, you know? <laughs> like, so I, I, I mean, I can think of moments like that, right? Of just going, man, I just wonder, feeling defeated. I can think over the last year and a half of uh, plenty of times. Like, I think you can, too, you know, watching the news, um, seeing things uh, just come across the ticker on the screen, just uh, being on social media, just wondering, like, are we ever going to get beyond this? Are, like, are we ever going to win? Are we ever going to beat this thing, you know? Are we ever going to get beyond it? And especially even in recent days, I mean, it just feels like the, the rhetoric and the news and the stuff just doesn't change and just being desperate, desperate for a win. There's some things I think God has been teaching me when it comes to defeat that I want to just share with you today. There's some things I think I'm learning. And let me just start by giving you this thought. I, I really believe that Christians are never supposed to get used to defeat. I really believe that Christians are never supposed to get used to defeat. Now, defeat happens. No doubt. Like, like you have things that you thought were going to go a certain way, and they don't. You, you have in your mind an idea, an outcome, and it doesn't go that way. And defeat is, is, is you know, on this side of heaven is a part of, of, of the human experience, you know, uh, disappointment, things like that. But I, I believe that Christians are never supposed to get used to it. In fact, I would say that, that, that I, I believe that, that God uh, has built something into the Christian that just longs for victory. I believe that there is something from God that is built into the Christian that is supposed to refuse to lose, to refuse to accept defeat. And that is really what I want to kind of get into and talk about today. And so kind of what I want to push into today as we continue on in our teaching series called Love and Light, where we are learning together through the book of 1 John. And uh, I think it's been fantastic so far. I mean, I think, I think the word of God speaks for itself. I mean, I'm not giving myself a pat on the back, but I really feel like the word of God has spoken for itself a lot through the summer. And uh, we've grown a lot, but uh, we're going to continue on in this series today, looking at 1 John, and we're going to flip the page and begin the final chapter of this book, this short book, chapter 5. One of the things you're going to notice as chapter 5 begins is that there are some themes that are repetitive. In fact, the entire book of 1 John is a bit repetitive. I don't know if you've noticed that, if you've read it, if you've seen it, or if you've noticed that like, man, I thought we already had a sermon on love, and we're coming back to another sermon on love. So there's some major themes throughout the book of 1 John that, 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 that the Apostle John repeats and double repeats, you know, and then he gives some variations on some things he's already said, and then he gives variations on those variations. You're going, man, like, what's going on here? Like, come up with some new, new stuff, right? But one of the things I love about John's writings, and one of the things I love about 1 John particularly, is that every time I'm reading through this book and I start to think, man, this is getting repetitive, maybe I can just skip ahead, because we've already touched on this, or maybe I can just close the book. John has a way of, like, hitting me 
with a brand new idea. He has a way of hitting me with something like I didn't think of before, or a, new, a new thought. And, and so that's, that's what I want to kind of like, uh, I guess, unfold for you today or help you see as well is, is maybe a new idea or a new thought uh, that John has for us. And so we're just going to begin in uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. And uh, just, just, just to let you know, I'm not going to be able to get through all of those scriptures that were read ahead of time. So um, uh, we'd be here until the, the worship night if, if that was the case. So First uh, John 5, 1, uh, A. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So I want to remind you that the main purpose for why John writes this letter in the first place is so that Christians will know that they are Christians. He writes this letter to help give assurance to these people of their faith, to help give assurance to these people of their salvation. If you skip ahead 12 verses of 1 John 5, 13, it's a verse we've mentioned more than once in this series already. John says this, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. So a huge part of the reason why, why John is writing this letter to, to you know, the believers in the first century, the reason why he's writing the letter you know, to us and, and, and why we can gather so much benefit from it is because it's, it's meant to give you and I assurance of our faith, of our salvation. And so over and over again, John, John just, just goes out of his way to tell us what a true Christian looks like. Hey, if you want assurance, if you want to know for sure that you're born again, like here's what it looks like to be a Christian. Now, John doesn't write this letter to confuse us, okay? He doesn't write this letter to condemn us either. He writes this letter to encourage us. And, uh, and the basic essence of a Christian, according to Jesus, and according to the Scriptures, and for sure according to the Apostle John, is that we are born again. It's, it's the basic essence of Christianity, that, that we have become born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, chapter Three, that, that unless a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. So like it's central to our belief system, right? This idea of being born again, that the telltale sign that we are Christians is that we have been born again spiritually by God through Jesus in us, right? Like, this, is, this is how it works. Okay, we're born again. That's what we believe. Well, one of the founding manifestations of being born again, one of the clear evidences that we have been born again according to John, is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at the scripture one more time, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And the reason why that word believes is highlighted is because I think that that's the, 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 the word that this entire scripture sort of hinges on. Like, what does that even mean? Like, 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 whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and has the assurance of their faith, the assurance of their salvation, well, if that's true, then we ought to know what it really means to believe in Jesus, okay? So, let me help you out with this. Some of my thoughts here, if you're taking notes. Belief does not merely mean intellectual assent. It is much deeper than that. Belief means that we have decided to lean upon Jesus with all of our lives, so belief doesn't just mean that you have been convinced intellectually to believe that Jesus is the Christ, okay? Um, you haven't just like maybe sat in a class or sat under, a, you know, a, a few sermons and like, yeah, it makes, some sen makes sense. In fact, actually, there's nothing about this that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, it, it, it blows our minds. And so 
Belief in Jesus is much more than just intellectual assent. It's much, much more than just being convinced intellectually that he is, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Belief means that you've decided to trust in Jesus with all of who you are. So when John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, he's saying like everyone who has decided to put all of their trust into Jesus, to lean upon him with all of who they are, is born of God. Now, there are two major things that we believe when we say that Jesus is the Christ. Two major things that, that, that we believe when we say that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, the idea of Jesus being the Messiah is, is, is uh, an Old Testament concept. It uh, comes out of the Old Testament. comes out of the first 39 books of your Bible. Uh, the, uh, the books that were written up until 400 years before Jesus came and walked the earth. The Old Testament prophets prophesied right, many times about the, the Messiah. They, they predicted that the Messiah would be two things to his people. And these are two things that we believe when we say that Jesus is the Christ. These are two things that they prophesied about and said, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be these two things. And these are two things that we continue to believe 2,000 years later about the Messiah as well. The number one, or, or the first thing they said was, or believed or prophesied was that he would come as a king. That when, when the Messiah came, he would come as a king. He would be one who would come as a, as a ruler, who would lead the kingdom of God on earth. In fact, Isaiah 9-7, uh, I want to give this to you, but let me just remind you of Isaiah 9-6 before I read this to you. Isaiah 9-6 is like famous Christmas scripture. I mean, we've taught on it in the last couple years, you know. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, right? I mean, you remember the this, 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 this scripture, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Well, the very next verse says this. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, like King David, okay? Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So this is the first aspect we believe when we say that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that we believe uh, that, that Jesus is, is the king, we are leaning onto Jesus. We are leaning into Jesus. We're putting all of, all of who we are onto Jesus, saying that if, if Jesus is the Messiah, then he is the king. If Jesus is the Messiah, then he is our leader. Okay? Let me, let me just give you the thought if you're taking notes. To be a Christian means that all of our life is lived under the authority of King Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That, that's what it means here to have, I mean, to have assurance of salvation, to, to, to believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is what it means. That all of our life is lived under the authority of King Jesus. Now, we obviously have times where we just, we, we mess up, we do things, we're like, yeah, Jesus wouldn't have wanted us to do that. He certainly didn't lead us to do those things. But being a Christian means to live your life with this idea that it's not my life anymore. I'm living it under the authority of Jesus. The second thing, and, and I think the thing that really kind of pushes into what I want to talk about uh, the most today, uh, that was prophesied about the Messiah and that we believe about Jesus is this, that he would be a liberator. He would be a liberator. They prophesied this. They believed that, Jesus, that, that the Messiah would, would be one who would liberate them from all of their oppression, from all of their bondage, that he would come, he would rescue them, right, from, from everything that they had been living through. In fact, in Isaiah 61, the prophet Isaiah, uh, he prophetically speaks for the Messiah. Uh, 700 some years before Jesus would be born, you know, and we read about that in Matthew 1, uh, 700 some years before, Isaiah speaks prophetically for the Messiah. And so this is what is said in Isaiah 61. This is the Messiah speaking. 
The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. This is, this, is, this is who the Messiah is supposed to be. This is what they're prophesying about the Messiah, that when he comes, he's going to do these things. Now, in, in Luke 4, I think it is, 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 Jesus stands up in the synagogue, and he, re, he, he, he quotes this very scripture and, and basically lets them know that he is, he is this person. He is the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1, we get the, the birth of Jesus. Famous, 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 right? The angel appears to Mary, and what does she do? She tells Mary to name her son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will be their liberator. He will come and he will set them free. So when we proclaim and we say that we believe in Jesus, okay, listen, listen. We believe that he is the Christ. When we say that, when we, when we communicate that, it means that we are leaning into Jesus as our liberator. We're putting all of who we are onto Jesus as our liberator and specifically that he liberates us from our sin. Said another way, he is our savior who saves us from our sin or saves us even from ourselves. He rescues us from inevitable defeat. Like, like it, it, it's, it's not going well for us, right? It, it's not looking good, and Jesus rescues us from inevitable defeat. He gives us victory over the very things that were sure to defeat us. And So the reason why I think this matters, and the reason why it's ma- it matters when you, when you say you believe in Jesus and you believe that he is your liberator, when you believe in Jesus like this, listen to me, his victory is your victory. His victory becomes your victory. And, and, and this, this marks us as Christians. This is something we hang on to. There is a hope that we have in us that other people just do not have who walk through similar challenges and circumstances in their lives, in their marriage, in their finances, and in, in whatever it is. His victory becomes our victory when we really believe these things. And so we walk through life with hope that other people just do not have. And I just wonder, if, like, is, is, this, is this your belief this morning? Is Jesus your liberator? Is Jesus your savior? Is he your king? Is he really your king? This is the telltale sign of someone actually being born again. As I said earlier, John opens this chapter by repeating some major themes. So he has already spoken in length over and over again about our believing in Jesus, and, and he does it again here, very first line of chapter 5 wanting us to really believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So he goes in depth over and over again about this. He's already spoken in length about how Jesus came in the flesh. You remember the heresy where they, that was being taught in the church I talked about a few weeks ago where uh, they, they, they were you know, being taught that Jesus was just some phantom spirit. He didn't really come in the flesh. I mean, John has repeated this thought over and over again by telling him, no, he actually did appear, like, you know, uh, uh, born of, of, of not just of water but of blood, right? That's what, what he's getting at here. He repeats that the people who believe this truth are the real children of God. Repeats this thought over and over again. He repeats that those who are the children of God are the ones who keep his commands and love people, love each other, love others. And all of that is like good and true, and all of that is worth repeating. But just as soon as we start to think that it's a little repetitive, like I, like I, like I start to think as I read through this, John hits us with something fresh and new. And the new idea, I would say, is another telltale sign that we are Jesus people. And if you're taking notes, let me give you this thought right here. This is the new idea John gives us, that everything born of God overcomes the world and experiences victory. Everything that is born of God 
overcomes the world and experiences victory. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, I'm going to have to repeat those because I guess, I guess they, they didn't make it on the screen. So, kind of the most important part of the morning. <laughs> so, uh, you got you to catch this. You got to pull out your phones if you need to, all right? Open up your Bibles. Look at this. 1 John chapter 5, 4 through 5. I'm going to give you a second just because I want you to catch this. You can go ahead and navigate to that on your phone for a minute here. Um, 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. It says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Okay. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John is speaking about a victory right here in, in this chapter that is both now and yet to come. He is speaking about a victory that is, that, that, that is uh, for sure re related to our eternal life, an eternal victory. But he is also speaking about a present victory in the here and now. This is, this is taught and retaught and retaught all throughout the, the, uh, the New Testament, for sure in the Gospels. Jesus speaks over and over again about the abundant life that there, there is a way of living here on earth for the Christian that, that would resemble uh, a victory in the here and now, that would resemble a victorious life in the here and now. There is also a victory that is yet to come. It, it's, 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 when we, it's when we get to heaven, when we overcome uh, the, the, the evil of this world and spend eternity with Jesus. And while I appreciate what this teaches and what it means, that there is an eternal victory, yes, and there is a victory in the here and now, the, the truth in the of the matter is that I don't always feel very victorious. I don't know, I don't know about you. I, I live life, and I know who Jesus is, and my salvation is secure in him, but I don't always feel very victorious. How about you? This is what I believe if you're taking notes. I believe that we all long to move from a place of defeat to a place of victory. Every single one of us. I think that there is something from God that is built into every single one of us that just longs for victory. A refusal to lose, a refusal to accept defeat. And if I were, if, if, if you were honest with yourself this morning, I think you would have to admit that there is a longing that, that exists within you as well for victory, for freedom, to overcome. Sometimes that longing is about things that are circ circumstantial, though, right? Let's just be honest. Sometimes that, if we're talking about circumstantial things, sometimes that's what that longing is for. Sometimes that longing for victory is about things that are in your heart, things that, like, other people would never know about. Sometimes the longing for victory is about things that are big or, or even, at times, things that are small, but I believe that there is an inevitable ache that exists within the human experience and story that we're all longing for this place of victory in our lives. We're all longing for this place of victory in our lives. 
And John says that everyone born of God overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John talks about this, this overcoming. He talks about this victory that we are to have over the world. And, and that's confusing, I think, a little bit. Because, like, what is he really talking about? Let me, just, let me just help define that and frame that for you appropriately here. Sometimes the world means every person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. All humanity throughout all of time. You think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? It's referencing all people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. That's not what John is talking about here. He's not talking about overcoming people or having victory over people, okay? Sometimes the world means the created universe that you and I live in. John is not talking about the cosmos here. He's not talking about that which God created. This is what, this is what John is talking about if you're taking notes. Let me give you this thought and kind of frame it for you uh, appropriately. When we're talking about the world as something that we are to overcome, we are talking about the broken and sinful system of this world that we live in that is empowered by Satan and designed to draw us away from God. That's what we're talking about here. This is the world that John is speaking about and referring to when he says that those who are born of God have overcome the world, have victory over the world. He is, he, he's referring to this idea that there is a global system that exists that is the default nature of the world. And that this system is intentionally designed to pull at our affections it's intentionally designed to distract your attention. It's intentionally designed to divide your allegiance to God. It is designed to draw us away from God. We can all relate to this, can't we? We can all relate to this. We live in a world that has essentially become remodeled so that it looks and operates entirely different from its original design. A world designed to draw us away from God. You know, one of the overarching themes found in 1 John, a theme that is, that is repeated and double repeated, right? A, a theme that, that, that we see more than once throughout this book is, is this idea to not be led astray. John says over and over, do not be led astray. He addresses this over and over again in his letter as he pleads with the believers in the first century to not be misled, to not be led astray. He's telling them to ignore the false ideas, to ignore the heresies. Predominantly, you know, uh, uh, docetism and Gnosticism were the two ones in the, in, in the early church that he was addressing there, but he's telling them to not be led astray, to ignore the false ideas, to ignore the false voices and the false visions that are trying to lead them away from the truth. How many of you know that it's not just the first century church that's dealing with false voices? How many know that it's not just the first century church that's dealing with false visions and false ideas? We too are trying to figure out what it means to hold fast to Jesus in times like this. What it means to hold fast to the person of Jesus in the midst of some of the most incredible times, I think, to be a Christian, ever. 
the crisis of faith that is happening in so many people's lives, from my perspective, is that they are more of a disciple of a secular culture than they are a disciple of Jesus. And as a result, they're being torn apart from the inside. Assimilated more to secular culture than assimilating to the life that Jesus has for them in the here and now. You want to know why this happens? You want to know why you find yourself being pulled in that direction? You want to know why, why when you look around at the church, you see this as well? Here's why, if you're taking notes. Because false voices and false visions offer, offer victory too. False voices and false visions offer victory too. False voices and false visions of what victory is. What happens is these things, they enter into the pain, and the pain is real. It's false ideas of what, of what victory really is. They enter into the confusion, and the confusion is real. They enter into the brokenness, and the brokenness is real in people's lives. They offer a victory that they can't deliver. And, and I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about exactly the, just the nuance of a statement like that, but it's true. I mean, like, like we are... We are, we are, we are led away and enticed by all sorts of different things because those things, those things offer us some sort of, of feeling of victory, some sort of, of feeling of, of uh, some sort of good feeling. But the reality is, is, that, is that these false visions and these false voices offer a victory that they can't deliver. You want, you want, to, know, you want to know why they can't deliver the victory? It's because all of these false voices and visions that we see in secular culture, they call for victory void of the substance of Jesus. In fact, if you're taking notes, look at this with me. Any vision of victory that is void of the substance of Jesus is hollow and deceptive. Hollow and it's deceptive. And this is the concept of the world that we're talking about here today. This is the concept of the world that the Apostle John is telling these first century Christians, hey, if you really believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're born of God, and if you're really born of God, then you have overcome the world. You have victory over the world. You have the victory over this, this system that is designed and empowered by Satan to draw you away from God. You can have power over that, victory over that, and John says we have victory over this through Jesus. And when we really believe in Jesus, his victory is our victory. And so I just wonder, how, how victorious do you, do you feel today? How victorious do you feel? Are you experiencing, experiencing Jesus' victory in your own life over the world? Are you experiencing that? Are you feeling that? I've said this many times, you know, one of, one of my... my, my I guess buzz phrases is, you know, I, I, I believe that there are um, plenty of Christians who are saved and headed to heaven, but they're not free. They're not free. They're not living a victorious life. So what do you do when defeat seems inevitable? What do you do when defeat seems inevitable, when it seems like it's just going to happen no matter what. What do you do? If any of you are 
sports fans, you may get in your mind a picture of, you know, like a baseball game. You may, you may, you may, you may get in your mind this picture of, you know, it is, it is the ninth inning. Uh, one team is down by many runs. There's two outs. They're up to bat. Like, it's just not going to happen, right? It's, it's, it's over. You got this, you know, all-world closer on the mound. It's just not going to happen. It, defeat's inevitable. What do you do when defeat seems inevitable? What do you do when cancer comes up in your life or in somebody's life that you really love? What do you do? When there's an illness in your body, when your body is not working the way it used to or when it's not working the way that it, that it should, what, what, what do you do when defeat seems inevitable? What do you do when there are fears that grip you, fears of the unknown, fears of the future? What do you, what do, you do when you look out you know, years, years out or weeks out or months out and you're going, man, and like defeat just seems inevitable? How do you, how do you live your life in those moments? When it seems like, like hope is very, very, very small. What do you do? What do you do when you have issues in your marriage and you're going, man, like I just, I just don't know. Like it just seems like, like this isn't going to turn around. What do you what do, you do in, in moments like that when defeat seems inevitable? What about in your finances? What about, what about when, when there are are more bills to be paid than there is money to pay them? How, how, how do you show up in those moments? And what do you do when defeat seems inevitable? I wonder, have you ever felt defeated? Have you ever just felt like you just lost? Maybe even right now in this moment, for some of you, you feel defeated. There is a story in the Old Testament of one of the great prophets, Elisha. If you know anything about being a prophet in the ancient world, particularly like in the Old Testament period, right? Um, it's not a job you want. Being the mouthpiece of God to people who want nothing to do with God, it's not a popular gig. In fact, Depending on who was king or queen, there was, there was likely to be a, a bounty on your head. It was common for prophets of God to be murdered, to lose their life. In this particular story, Elisha isn't real popular. And there is a king who wants him dead and chases him and and Elisha's servant to a neighboring area. Elisha and his servant, they, they kind of hide inside this home. They, they are fleeing for their lives. And the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 6 that when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. So if you can imagine, Elisha and his servant, you know, they go to bed thinking maybe they had, they had escaped, maybe they had gotten away from those who want to harm them, and the servant of the man of God wakes up, goes outside, maybe he's trying to get some coffee made or whatever, and he looks up and he sees all around the city an army 
with horses and chariots had surrounded them. They, they'd found him. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? Uh, the servant asked. This is actually the, 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 I think maybe the first place in Scripture where we, we hear someone say, oh, my God. Right? He says, oh, my Lord. Like, think about how you might say that. Oh, oh, my Lord. You know, like that's, that's what's going on here. He looks out and he sees an army surrounding them. What shall we do, the servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Listen to this. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. It says in verse 17, And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. There is a dynamic going on in this story between the servant and Elisha, and the servant looks out and he sees that they are outnumbered, they are outmanned, they are outgunned. And yet the prophet, the man of God, is not worried. He's not losing sleep. He's not nervous. Why? Because God has enabled him to see something that the servant can't see. Elisha prays and he says, Lord, open up his eyes so that he may see. Look at this. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. How many of you know that when Elisha's servant opened the door and saw an army surrounding the city uh, that had come for them, that defeat seemed inevitable? How many of y'all know that? How many of y'all know that it, it looked like it was the end? It looked like it was over. It looked like death was like on their doorstep that day. Something significant happened. What the servant didn't know is that there was more happening around them that he could see with his eyes. Because defeat was all he could see until God opened his eyes. Listen to me, I want you to know something. Some of you here this morning, you gotta understand that we serve the God of the comma. We serve the God of the comma. Like the story is not over even though it looks like it is. There is still more to be written. Nothing is ever final unless he says it is final. He is the God of, you know, just, just, just wait a minute. You know, just, just hold on, wait a minute. He's the God who gets the last word. He's the God of the comma. Every single situation in your life, everything you're going through, it might still end in a way that you don't, you don't want it to end or in a way you didn't plan on, 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 it, on it ending. But I take everything in my life that looks like defeat and I just place it at his feet. I take everything in my life that looks like defeat and I, and I put it into his hands. And I, and I always, every time I ask God, do you have something else you want to say about this? Because I serve the God of the comma. I serve the, uh, the, the God who gets the last word, who writes the rest of the story. You know, this, this, out of this story here in 2 Kings chapter 6 comes a, a, a song, a worship song that many of us know and sing. This is how I fight my battles. You know that song, this is how I fight my battles. How do the lyrics go? It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. Let me just tell you today, I, I felt this in my spirit, uh, just prepping this message, that there was a prophetic tone to this, this sermon. 
I'm not, I'm not telling you that, there, that there's, this is, I'm not, there's a difference between prophecy and, and, and something that is prophetic in nature, okay? Something that's prophetic is that it's not just timeless, it's timely, okay? All truth is timeless. All truth is timeless. All truth is always truth. The reality of the word of God is always for us in every moment and in every season, but there are times where this timeless word of God is timely. There's a prophetic nature. There's a prophetic tone to it where it's not just timeless, it's timely. And there are some of you in here today, like you've, this is a timely word for you. This is a timely message for you where you're at in your life now, today. And God wants to open your eyes so that you can see that there are more who are with you than, more who are with, than those who are with them. Listen to me, if you're taking notes today, you gotta catch this. I'm trying to wind this down, but I, I, I've got so much, like you gotta, you gotta catch this today. If you're taking notes, look at this. You're gonna have to decide at different moments and seasons in your life when victory seems to be pending, which voice you're gonna trust. You're gonna have to decide at different moments and seasons in your life when victory seems to be pending, which voice you are going to trust. How many of you know that there's, a lots of, there's lots of other voices? There's lots of other visions of what victory is. And what makes us who we are is that we are people who respond to the only voice that matters, the voice of God. That's what makes us who we are. It's what he speaks in these moments. It's what he speaks into our lives. It's what he speaks during trials that we face. It's what he speaks as you walk through circumstances you didn't plan on facing. You may be looking at some of your situations in life and feel little to no hope, but aren't you glad that you serve the God of the comma? Let me give you this thought. The most important part of your spiritual formation will be learning to trust the voice of God instead of the voices of those who have already been defeated by him. The most important part of your spiritual formation. It's not about, listen to me, it's the most important part. The most important part of your spiritual formation is not how much of the Bible you have read and consistently over X amount of days, over X amount of years. The most important part of your spiritual formation is not how long you pray, and if you pray and there's tears, and if you feel goosebumps when you pray. The most important part of your spiritual formation is learning to trust the voice of God instead of the voice of those who have already been defeated by him. Let me show you something here in the Old Testament one more time. There is a very famous story in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was another prophet of God. And Ezekiel has this encounter with God in the Old Testament, which which uh, it's, it's, it's one of those stories that, uh, even though I've read it a hundred times, easy, it still gives me chills. Like, it still gives me goosebumps when I read this story. And in Ezekiel 37, God encounters Ezekiel, and he asks him some pretty incredible things. It says this in verse 1, Ezekiel says, the hand, of the, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were dry, meaning they'd been there a long time. 
In verse 3, he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. It's a tough question, isn't it, to get from God? In this story, defeat isn't inevitable. Defeat has already happened. And what I love about this interaction between God and Ezekiel is that the only opinion Ezekiel is interested in hearing from is God's opinion. I mean, he looks out over this valley. There are, there are bones there. It's an army that has died, right? The bones are just there in this valley, the valley of dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, he says, can these bones live? Can the impossible happen? Can the story be rewritten? Can the narrative change? And Ezekiel looks at, 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 at you know, the impossible that's in front of him, and he just looks at God, and he says, Only, he says you alone know. There's no other voice that matters here on the subject. There's no, no, nobody else's opinion that matters here. The only opinion that matters is God's opinion. Listen to me. It is impossible to go through life without hearing other voices. It is impossible to go through life without hearing other opinions. But it is one thing to hear a voice, and it's another thing to listen to a voice. And the, the most important part of your spiritual formation will be learning to trust the voice of God in your life. What does he have to say? And as you're facing things that seem impossible... I mean, I mean may, may you even this morning hear the voice of God say, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Can this marriage live? Can these finances come back to life? Can these relationships be restored? You alone know, God. You alone know. If you're taking notes today, I want to give you uh, this thought here. Victory is not found through strength. It's only found through surrender. As Christians, we surrender to the voice of God. We surrender to the authority of God. It's his way over my way. The way of Jesus is victory under, not victory over. It's, it, you look at the life of Jesus, it's, it's, it's his path, it's his way. It's victory under, not victory over. And we, we surrender. Victory is found through surrender. Everywhere else you look in life, it is found through strength. Like every other person wins victories by fighting. Jesus, by suffering. All other like gods, they're not even real, but all other gods in other religions and other faith, they exercise power by killing. Jesus exercises power by dying. No other God, no other power, no other being in all the world loves like this, gives like this, and dies like this. Let me help you with this. Like, victory is not found through holding on. Victory is found through letting go. Sometimes we think, man, if I can just, if I can just hold on just a little bit longer, if I can just keep my, you know, my, 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 my you know, work on my, 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 my finger strength, my, get my fingertips on this thing just a little bit longer, I can, I, 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 can, I can end up getting what I really want out of this. Victory is not found through holding on. It's found through letting go. It's found through surrender. Victory comes through surrender. The victory that you carry as a Jesus follower, listen to me here, you gotta you got dial in, okay? The victory that you carry as a Jesus follower is that you can suffer and not become defeated. Because now, you don't need to somehow eliminate your problems in order to be victorious. 
victory has been brought to you in the person of Jesus. So, so as a Jesus follower, hear me, hear me, victory's not somewhere out there. Victory, victory's in here. It's been brought to you. It's not somewhere to be found. It's, it's here with you. It exists in you. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and I'm going to do my best to get this done in six minutes. Matthew chapter 16 is um, hands down one of my most favorite stories in the Bible. has a lot to do with um, uh, being over in Israel uh, over two years ago and being at this very spot in the way it, the story just came alive to me. But Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has an encounter with his disciples uh, that is uh, absolutely unbelievable. He asks a question in this story that likely is what influences the Apostle John to write like he writes, to, to write the kind of questions he did. Remember, John says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. But look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So basically what they're saying here is they're saying people have no idea who you are, but they know that you're something. They don't really know who you are, but they know that there's something about you. Jesus responds at the very next verse in verse 15. And he says, he says, but what about you? Who do, who do you say that I am? He said, other people think that he's John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, okay? But he says, you, you, my followers, my disciples, like, who do you say that I am? Let me just say this, something to you. Let me just give you a little, a, little, a little aside real quick. If Jesus really is who he says he is, this right here is the most important question you will ever be asked in your lifetime. Who do you say that he is? Not what other people, who, you know, what other people say Jesus is, or who do other people say Jesus is. Who do you say that he is? Most important question you will ever be asked in your life. Peter. Gotta love Peter. Peter, Peter sort of stands up. He's the elder statesman of the group, right? It's all young men, but he's the oldest. Him and Jesus were the oldest of the group, right? Peter stands up and he, and he just says, he says, you you are the Christ. You're the Christ. The son of the living God. Who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. Now, Peter's not theologically very well developed at this point. I mean, he's definitely had some training, but you know, he came off the boats not that long ago catching fish. He's not giving an answer based on intellectual assent. He's not giving an answer based on just being convinced after enough reasoning that Jesus maybe is the Christ. He's giving an answer based on his decision to lean upon Jesus with all of his life, his decision to believe. Peter is essentially looking at Jesus and saying, look, I've seen enough. Whoever you are and whatever you are, I'm in. 
I've seen enough. Whatever they want to call you, whatever you are, I, I, I am in. I'm all in. I've seen enough. Verse 17. Jesus replied to Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, right? It's not intellectual assent. This is not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not overcome it. Now, I've told you this story before, but he is standing in Caesarea Philippi at the, the, the foot of a temple that is, that is dedicated to the pagan god Pan, known in, in uh, you know, the pagan world at that time as the entrance to the underworld. In fact, in fact, you can still go there today and there is this, there is this, uh, this cave and there's, there's water in there and, and this was where they would, they would do human sacrifices into, the, into this, this place. They, they, this is where, I mean, anything and everything was allowed. Any kind of, you know, you know sin that we would, we would, you know, think of, anything, anything your flesh desired happened here as they worshiped Pan. The entrance to the underworld. the gates of hell. Jesus, looking at his disciples, he has the backdrop to this story is, is this, this, this uh, temple to the god Pan, the, the gates of hell literally behind him. And he looks at Peter and he says, God has shown you this. You, you, didn't, you didn't just learn this on your own. You, you didn't just get this from intellectual ascent that I am the Christ. This has been revealed to you by God. And I tell you, Peter, that, that uh, on this rock, I will build my church. And, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus, you know what he's saying here? He's telling Peter, he says, when you choose to put your faith in me, when you choose to really believe that I am the Christ, when you choose to lean, on, lean upon me with all of your life, this is what he's saying right here, if you're taking notes. When you trust me, the gates of hell will not be able to do a thing about it. When you trust me, when you believe me, when you, when you put everything you are into me, the gates of hell will not be able to do a thing about it. Because the one who overcomes, the ones who overcome are the ones who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Come on. I came to, I came to preach today. Man. I think you got a couple more minutes in you, don't you? Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says about Jesus, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Coloss from prison in Rome. And he's writing to them about something that they would have known well. He's writing to them about what was known in sort of the, the ancient Roman world as a triumphant entry and a public spectacle. You see, Octavian was the emperor of Rome, also went by the name of Caesar Augustus. 
which you read about him when the census is taken and Mary and Joseph have to go to Nazareth. But Octavian was known for his military conquest. And an example of what a triumphant entry was, you know, when he would go and he would conquer different parts of the world, he would eventually return to Rome and there would be this triumphant entry. And there would be this huge celebration. There would be people just lining the streets, going crazy, just cheering on Octavian and his men as they returned to Rome. And in tow was the spoils of war. Kings and emperors, rulers of other nations, chained, following behind. As Octavian and his men enter into the city, people saw rulers of other nations chained, conquered, defeated. And Paul writes this from prison in Rome. And he tells them that Jesus has essentially done the same thing. That G what Jesus did on the cross is his triumphant entry. That he has, he has disarmed the powers, the rulers of this world. And he has made a public spectacle of them. This is what it was called as, as, as Octavian or, or other, other rulers would, would, would lead these former rulers and, and kings and emperors, pharaohs, whatever it is, through the city. It was known as a public spectacle. They'd be making a public spectacle of these guys. Mockery. Showing how they were defeated. And Paul is writing to the church in Colossians. He's telling them, look, can you get this in your mind right now? That every enemy that has set itself up against the authority of Jesus, he has made a public spectacle of them. He has defeated them. And so he's saying, like, look, 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 watch. Can you get it in your mind? He goes, like, there, there goes death. There goes death. It's now captive to Jesus. Look at it. It's chained. It's bound. Look at it. It's captive to Jesus. He's, he's saying, like, look, there goes fear. There goes fear right there. It's captive to Jesus. Can you see it? Can you see it in chains? Can you see it held captive right now? There goes hatred. It's passing by. I mean, picture yourself sort of lining the street. It goes right on by. There's, there's hatred. There's greed. Can you see greed pass by? It's in chains. It's been defeated. There goes racism. There goes sickness. There goes marriage problems. There goes defeat. Can you see it? Can you look out from your vantage point and see the public spectacle of God's enemies as they are now stripped, defeated, and chained? Can you see it? Can you see it? Listen to me, everybody right here. There is only one who is victorious. There is only one who has the authority to give you victory. There is only one who has the authority to grant you victory in your life. There might be other voices and other visions of victory. There might be other voices and other visions of what victory can be in your life and other paths that would tempt you to try to pursue victory those ways. But there is only one who has ever been victorious. There's only one who will ever be victorious. And there is only one who can ever grant you victory. Why would you ever trust the voices of the very things that have already been defeated by Jesus? Why would you ever do that? Would you stand with me this morning? Remember this, okay? Paul 
is in prison. And he's writing this from a place of defeat. It doesn't matter if you feel like you are in some sort of proverbial prison yourself. Whether you feel like you're thriving or not. Whether you feel defeated or not. Look at this thought with me. This is, this is your last... Mm. Look at this. When you hold fast to the one who is triumphant, victory will begin to manifest in your life. When you hold fast to the one who is triumphant, victory will begin to manifest in your life. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing that you will have victory in every situation, every, every scenario, but when you and I hold fast to the person of Jesus, the one who was victorious, the one who made a public spectacle of his enemies, I'm just telling you right now that victory is going to start to leak out in your life. It's going to start to manifest itself in your life. And so today the call, the call on the church this morning is to hold fast to the one who is triumphant. To hold fast to Jesus. To let him just renew your hope. To let him just be the vision in front of you. Paul writes in Philippians and says that, 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 that we were the vision that... that uh, set before Jesus when he was on the cross. But now, like, our, our response to Jesus is that he's our vision set before us. He's set before us as our vision. Cling tight, hang tight to the one who has been triumphant, and I promise you that victory will start to manifest in your life. Would you bow your heads with me here this morning? And I, I, I apologize as much as I, I can for going long, but I really am not that sorry. Let me just tell you right now, God wants to do something in your life. I believe for some of you, this is a, this is, this is a timely moment. This is a timely moment. This is a timely moment in some of your lives right now. God wants to break things off. God wants to, to change some things in your life. He wants to reorient some priorities right now in this place. This is a timely moment. This is a timely moment. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would come. Father, that you would come and do the things that only you can do in this house. I pray for freedom in this place. For victory in this place right now, God. May you become the thing that matters most, God. As we exalt you, as we lift you up in this place. As we hold you tight as we hold fast to the one who was triumphant. God, I ask that victory would start to show itself in people's lives in this room under the sound of my voice. And so God, I ask that the stories would start to change. The narrative would start to shift. The things that look defeated and impossible would start to come back to life again. God, would you breathe life on areas and people, and people right now that are just so discouraged, so defeated, ready to give up. Lord, breathe new life in Jesus' name. Can these bones live? Can these bones live? Can these bones live? Only you know, God. Only you know. And so, God, would you breathe on us like you breathed on that valley in Ezekiel 37? Would you breathe on us here today? Would you bring, breathe life and power and transformation in and through us? I pray that stories would change from this moment forward. In Jesus' name. Let me just tell you right now that if you, if you are holding fast to the one who was triumphant, victory is yours today. Come on.